Hey everyone, announcement time! Please join me in congratulating former Strange New Worlds co-host and this week's guest, Elise Cuts, on receiving a Fulbright Fellowship! This is a one-year research fellowship that will take Elise to Denmark, where she will study the ways in which microbes take nitrogen out of the air. Microbes, you say? Well, don't forget that until very recently, this used to be a microbial world, and the collective power of all those microscopic critters is responsible for huge changes in Earth's environment, including the creation of the air that we breathe. But I'll let her tell you more about that when the time comes. Today, Elise and I are going to be discussing the stories and science of Season 2 of Star Trek Discovery. By the way, if you're new to this podcast, be warned. We spoil everything. The interview that you're about to hear was recorded during my visit to Caltech in February 2019, before Elise heard about the news of her Fulbright, and just after the fifth episode of the second season aired. We're going to talk about her impressions of the season, her evolving views of the characters, and the role of faith in Star Trek. Then, we're going to dive into the science of Season 2, and I'll ask Elise to help me brainstorm topics of discussion for my upcoming public lecture on the science of Star Trek for the Astronomy on Tap series. This is Mike Wong. You're listening to Strange New Worlds, and let's jump right in. Oh, it's so good to be back. It's been... Oh, far too long. Absolutely. It's like we've been separated across the mycelial network. I did send you a tardigrade in the mail. Exactly. Yeah. And I got it. And it it made it. It was also a blue tardigrade, which seems to be the color of the mycelial network. It's it's a very bluish realm. Except when it's sick, right? Then it turns red. And sparkly. And sparkly. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the forest is on fire. Yeah. You know, I mean, the mycelial network did actually get some people high. So maybe they're, you know, they're drawing some inspiration from somewhere. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So we just binged the first five episodes of Star Trek Discovery's second season. And, you know, the first season was quite a roller coaster ride. And this one is also a roller coaster, but it feels like it's in a completely different direction, but still very exciting, very gripping, and very scientifically intriguing. So we will talk all about that. So a thing that I think we, we should definitely touch on is just your general feelings on the characters that we've grown to know and love on Discovery. So Elise, what are your thoughts on the different trajectories that these characters have taken in the first five episodes of season two and how maybe you've grown to like them more or less? So... The first character I have to talk about then is definitely Saru. When you talk about you know, a character who grew on me, I did not like Saru in season one. I found him really annoying to look at on screen. I didn't like his appearance. I didn't like his character. I thought he was really underdeveloped and unexplained and that they just sort of threw him on as an excuse to put some funny makeup on someone. I mean, the acting was really, really good, but I just didn't like his, his character just didn't feel right compared to the others. 
But oh my lord, this season has changed everything, starting with that short trek, which I just watched as well. I've been really busy and haven't watched any of the Star Trek really at all until this sort of crazy marathon. And that short trek put everything in perspective for Saru. And then when when that story kept coming back, he he went from being this sort of, you know, cowardly always saying no, always being sort of the brakes on the on the Michael Burnham train when you just want to see her succeed and be awesome. And all of a sudden, one, you see Saru be an exceptional individual among his species, which is just puts him in perspective. We learn about the Kelpians. We learn he's from a pre-warp civilization. We learn more about this whole prey dynamic, which is, it really seems more like slavery or livestock than prey. It, it sort of implied earlier that they were being hunted, which was how do you how do you do that on a planet with intelligent it didn't make as much sense, but we have seen people treat each other like this in human history. This is not something that we cannot understand. His relationship with Michael has just completely changed everything for those two characters in so many ways, like learning empathy for Michael from Saru and really seeing empathy valued. You know, Star Trek so often as scientists, I mean it's it's exciting to see scientists be the hero all the time. But that idea that, you know, logic and, and strength and power and, and being smart are really the ways to go through the universe and be successful and be important is such a big part of Star Trek. But then we see this character whose power is his emotional empathy. And I think that's so, so powerful, especially because he's a male character, too. Seeing somebody whose strength is their vulnerability is just amazing. And the revelation about the life cycle. If, honestly, Saru was just great, and I can't wait to see more of him. And that's something I never thought I'd be saying. So props to Saru. <laughs> uh, yeah, and props to actor Doug Jones as well oh to emote so much through all, all of that, of that makeup. face stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like you said, you know, we, we often prize logic and reason, but as Spock wisely said in the original series, logic is the beginning of wisdom and not the end. Yeah. And I feel like Saru has been teaching Michael a lot about really what it means to be human. It's kind of weird, right? That outside character in Star Trek is always so powerful at showing the human characters what it means to be human. And so I think that that episode, episode four, where they encounter the sphere, and uh, Saru is dying and Michael does this huge like 180 about her relationship or what she wants her relationship to be to Spock because she realizes that somebody in season one who she was always butting heads with and kind of hated and always got under her skin suddenly became one of the most valuable members of her disco family yeah literally like her family and I think she and Saru have this connection of being sort of outcasts and alone. And, you know, Michael is a human among humans, but she's also this in this weird no man's land between having been raised Vulcan and, and having this weird convict backstory and, and coming from turmoil. And Saru has something similar. Like, neither of them really have a home to go back to. Seeing them be close was incredible. And I was just struck by how deep the character relationships are. I mean, we see it over and over again with Tilly and Stamets and everyone. Even even Pike is starting to get it now, too, even though he hasn't been here very long. And man, like, Disco is very different from a lot of Star Trek in that way. And it takes you, you know, two, like three seasons of Next Gen to really, really have deep, deep relationships between characters. I agree. So I think that a lot of the 1990s Star Treks 
were about ideas and the characters were there basically to explore these high philosophical ideas. Disco does a good job uh, incorporating the philosophy and we'll talk about this more. But um, but I feel like it's also very character driven, yeah. which is different from a lot of Star Treks and actually probably the most similar to Deep Space Nine, which I know you haven't seen yet. But uh, yeah, very... Enterprise was pretty character driven in some ways, but I wouldn't say it was a complete success. <laughs> but uh, I still have a soft yeah. spot for Trip, so I mean, at least they do a good job there. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about Saru's impact on Michael, especially in that episode four. Um, What do you think Michael's journey is in season two? In season one, she was definitely on an arc of redemption, having made a very fatal mistake at the beginning of the season and then learned about the values of Starfleet and to uphold those. Uh, What what do you foresee uh, her arc being in season two? Faith. Faith is the, the word for this season for me, which is so thrilling because it's bringing the the philosophical heart back that I think Star Trek has been missing. Michael is a scientist in in the way she goes through the world. Um even though she's she's a xenoanthropologist by training, I think, right? That's her yeah. that's her thing even though she does everything. So, regardless of what her actual job title is, she is, you know, the one who beams down and starts preaching science to the locals like literally in, in episode 2. Uh and she's encountering and i think this is a great place to bring spock in because this is spock's whole thing throughout everything spock has been in from the beginning is logic doesn't get you to the end there's that quote and you you just brought it up earlier that logic is the beginning of wisdom and not the end and this this is what michael is having to discover and we have all of this really wonderful like religious imagery that's coming in and i think it's i mean I was raised Catholic. I'm not anymore, but it tickles that, you know, feeling of belonging to something greater. And that's the thing that Michael's exploring. And Pike is the perfect captain for this too, because he is so not the scientist. He talks about having this background with religion. And so he's this sort of person running on faith to sort of nudge her down the path that Spock kind of comes to on his own in the, in the timeline we're familiar with. So I think faith is the name of the game. It's really fun to be seeing those kinds of ideas batted around and Star Trek sort of grappling with where the science fiction ends and the speculative like divinity comes in. But taking things on faith, that's that's Michael's big, big leap this season. And you mentioned that Pike is the perfect captain for this. What have you liked from Captain Pike so far? I think that he is very charismatic. Uh, he's everything that we would expect Pike to be, but he's also a lot deeper than I would have expected Pike to be in a really sort of surprising way. I was expecting, you know, Captain Kirk figure coming in, like twirling around phasers, pew pew, space cowboy. And he is that, but he's also this kind of philosophical guy, which I was really surprised by in the in the kind of way that that you don't go to college to learn. Like he's he seems like he's seen a lot and he's gone on his gut a lot. And he's got this sort of open mind about things. Whereas the the more scientific characters are, you know, using their science to do amazing things, but they're also not willing to consider possibilities that they can't explain. Pike is very willing to run on that sort of emotional, I'm willing to accept that I don't understand everything sort of point of view, which is really, really good. Um, And he's so different from Lorca in that he's so warm. Like, that's something that Disco was really missing except for Tilly. She was the only warm person (laughs) on that whole ship. And she was just running around, spewing as many words out of her face as possible, trying to be warm to everyone. And now we've got this sort of very natural, 
center. It, like He almost reminds me of like a hearth that people come around. And he even you know, sets his office up differently. It's all nice, warm light where Lorca literally had to keep it dark for his eyes. And they're nice places to sit in his ready room, too. Yeah, Remember, Lorca was always just standing yeah, no, there. Yeah, no, I mean, they literally imposing. bring that up in the first episode that he comes in. So he's he is bringing the heart in, and he's that sort of human... To me, a lot of these characters represent sort of different parts of being human. To me, Pike is is that feeling that there has to be something more, that there has to be a plan, that you have to take things on faith a little bit sometimes and be willing to accept that there are things you won't understand completely. That That's the part of humanity I think he's really pushing for us here. That, you know, good old like human trust. So I, I've really, really liked Pike and I've liked his relationship with Michael a lot too. That sort of learning to trust each other. She's sort of learning to have faith from him just as she's learning emotion from like empathy, not emotion necessarily, empathy from Saru. Um, it's a really good pair, I think. There's almost a triangle of people teaching Michael different emotions and parts of being human. It's a good time to bring in Amanda too on that scale. Like if we're talking about learning to be human, bringing in literally the person who was her only anchor, Michael's only anchor to Earth when she was on Vulcan is more than a little bit significant. Absolutely. So we see Amanda Grayson, I believe is her last name, Michael's foster mother, come on board the Discovery in episode three, and she is carrying in tow with her Spock's medical files that she took perhaps without permission, from Starbase 5's medical center, psychiatric ward. <laughs> and um, that was so great to, to see her beam over. Of course, we were all expecting it to be Sarek, but there's Amanda. And we haven't really seen Amanda by herself act with very much agency in Star Trek before. She's always been Sarek's wife or Spock's mom. But to see Amanda going out on her own and having this little adventure to, uh, to to find Spock. I mean, she's on her own search for Spock as well. And that was really great to see. And so what have you liked from Amanda's relationship to Michael? So, I mean, the first, to talk about her taking that medical file though, first for a second, when she, when she opens her hand, when she puts it on Michael's hand, as soon as she says, I stole his file, the first thing I said, I turned to Mike and I was like, that is the most human thing I've ever seen. Just mom, I gotta get my boy. So, <laughs> so it was just so amazing to see this just completely almost feral like instinct that we associate with you. It was, it was great. Um, she's just very, very human. She's so deep though, which is something that I wasn't really ever expecting to get out of a character. I didn't know that she was even going to be as major of a character as she was. And I'm so glad that she is because um, she's a way to think about like the role of parents and in, in who their children become. And if parents should feel guilty for what they see as their failings towards their children, can parents make mistakes? Obviously, yes. And also, the, I mean, the relationship between her and Michael is just, you know, a beautiful sort of exploration of non-traditional families and, and what love is and, and the role of what a mom is to someone and how she feels she fails Spock but didn't fail Mike. It was, she's amazing to watch, and I'm so glad that we get to see her stand on her own feet a little bit here. Absolutely. She's great. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of moms, how about the great Klingon mother? <laughs> Klingon, Klingon Queen Elizabeth. They literally have the queen mother now. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> but, okay. I, okay. Uh, sidetracked. I, I loved that. I loved how she sort of adopted this whole 
idea we're familiar with. Like, I'm the virgin queen. I'm not going to marry. I'm not going to have children. You are all my children. And I loved how they all like screamed for that. That was amazing. An amazing moment. As sad as it is the way that she was forced into it, having to give up her son and her lover. It was, it was really sad, but also very, very cool to see how that all played out. And I think more than anything, it wrapped up the Klingon plot very cleanly because we can sort of assume going forward that she's secure in her position. Um, but we've also conveniently removed Ash, which is something that needed to happen for him to continue to be a part of the story. And it makes sense the way that it happened, too. I remember at the end of season one, you had concerns about Lorel's sudden rise to power, how no Klingon would suddenly trust this person holding a detonator in her hand. And we see that. There is a little bit of pushback. House Cole is after her and trying to wrestle that newfound power away from her back to their house. And, uh, and she ends up defeating them with the help of section 31 oh god oh god this was just america going into latin america and holding up dictator uh, i've just okay lots of parallels to world history very much federation acting in a way that's consistent with the way the u.s has done in the past i think there's a lot of federation america analogies that happen in this season not i mean there's a refugee thing with saru very timely uh there's this sort of idea of should we be meddling in world affairs what way should we be meddling in world affairs? All very nice stuff. And Giorgio is, I mean, amazing and charismatic and crazy in all of the best ways. But it, it just sort of, wow, that was quite, quite a mirror <laughs> of some things that have happened. Um, my favorite part of that scene, though, the whole scene with the, the coup that was stopped, essentially, was all the blood. Because they kept the pink Pepto-Bismol blood for the Klingons. I was so worried they weren't going to do that, but it made me so happy that they did. Perhaps a gross thing to point out, but it was, it was fun for me, so I was, I'm glad they kept it. Oh, yeah. It's a great touchstone to previous Star Trek, and Discovery is just littered with them, so I'm, I'm really happy when those things come up and when I'm around friends who will notice them. Yeah, they do a really, them. really good job of, one, in this season, tying up the loose strings from the last season, and two, tying up loose strings from Star Trek in general, and keeping things as consistent as they can, trying to explain their place in the canon a little bit. There are some some specific horrific times when that has failed, but especially in the little details, they do a really, really good job. Okay, so we just watched the fifth episode, the latest one, and we haven't talked about this episode yet on Strange New Worlds. So I guess the biggest thing that happens in this episode is that they travel to the mycelial network trying to find Tilly... They rescue Tilly, but they also bring back Dr. Hugh Colber, who had died at the hands of Voke slash Tyler in the middle of season one. Elise, do you have any thoughts or feelings on the plot twists in this episode? I want them to make me glad that Colber is back, but I really hate it when death is not permanent and is not treated as the immensely profound, life-changing thing for the people around the death when it happens, I don't like feeling like characters can cheat fate like that. I mean, their fate that they're written, I guess, fate is not the right word because their fate is whatever is written for them. I don't like feeling like they can cheat death. I thought it was kind of cheap to bring him back. But, you know, I, I thought Saru was awful the first season and they proved me so wrong. So maybe, maybe this will work out 
But I think the only way that to me it will be satisfying is if it's not really the happy ending that we think it's going to be now. And I don't really think they can do that at this point. Um, maybe they will. I don't know. It, it just felt a little bit cheap for me. Learning to move on from a loss is something that is a part of being human. And there's so much exploration of being human in this show that I was thinking that that was going to be Stamets's place in a lot of ways, like love and loss and learning to move on and accept that the people you love will not always be there. And that he just gets to have his love back. I don't know. It, it rubbed me the wrong way. And I thought it sort of cheapened all of the sadness. But maybe I'm a little too morbid. Maybe I should just <laughs> wish everyone has happy endings. Mm. Well, I guess to swing it in a different direction, we did get to dabble in a little bit of fundamental science principles through Hugh Kolber's return. Apparently, he was transferred to the mycelial network yeah. through a magic way when uh, Stamets was going between dimensions and brought the energy or the katra, I guess. Yeah, his spirit. I guess spirits exist in the right. Star Trek universe. So I guess what I don't understand is if everyone dies and their spirits kind of end up in the network. See, I don't think is that's that not, true. Yeah. Because I think it was the special fact that Stamets yeah. was traveling and between... Yeah, I thought I thought that they was they were sort of implying that their everyone's spirit ends up in the network because they they keep saying oh it's recycling it's keeping the cycle of life going. I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, what does this mean? And also when uh, Tilly sees the ghost of someone who had died, but they then explain that as like mining her memory, which is something a little bit different. But when they originally brought in this ghost, I was like oh the mycelial network is the afterlife in Star Trek. It's kind of not right. Sort I don't of think what that's they're true. saying, yeah. But I guess in a world where you can reconstitute somebody from their base atoms, so long as that perfect pattern was preserved, they could reconstitute him. The thing is, though, I guess this comes back to the transporter problem. Mm -hmm. Is that really even Culver? I, it's, it's a copy of him that literally they reconstituted a cocoon. They didn't even reconstitute him from his own parts. Right. Literally, they just copied the pattern. So it would be like if you stored somebody's pattern in a transporter and then started, you know, turning carbon blocks into copies of them. Right. They still have all the memories because we assume the pattern is perfect. But, you know, if you make 50, are any of them, are they all the real one? Mm -hmm. They're going to start having different memories as soon as you beam them into different places. Yes. And I would say that this is a philosophical problem with the transporter that we can circle yeah, we around can never, for ages. We can't solve it. Yeah. I guess in the Star Trek universe, when you're reconstituted, you just are you that's just taken for granted right um so this is essentially a transporter problem is what happens to Culver. Mm -hmm. his physical body dies but stamets somehow preserves the pattern of what his physical body was in the moments before he was dead because he didn't rematerialize with a broken neck yeah it seems like there is some kind of neural energy or human katra or spirit or whatever you want to call it that was transferred into the network yeah the network recreated a body for Hugh Culber from network mass, but then we saw that that matter couldn't transfer into our universe. Yeah. So we needed to use some kind of matter from our universe, which happened to, well, we had a blob of mycelial matter growing as this cocoon slash 
blob that uh that was in the engineering yeah. bay so it was, it was just a that. lot for me <laughs> yeah it's it's a lot of well you know the harder you think about the mycelial network they the, yeah you just don't yeah. that's the thing i think i actually went on a rant about this in a past episode mm. is just stop thinking about the mycelial stop network thinking about it. i'm so much happier when i don't think about it and just look at the pretty colors and lights <laughs> <laughs> well so we did have some drops of real scientific principles conservation of energy yeah. conservation yep. of mass um, in chemical reactions it's true that mass is neither created nor destroyed it's just reshuffled around and uh, that's how Stamets realizes that Tilly is no longer in the blob or the cocoon cocoon. so he scanned the cocoon for what would have been the remnants of Tilly's body the proteins and the lipids and I think he even says those words yeah Um, and then he realizes oh they're not there so they must have been essentially transported to another realm and so that's kind of cool that we have the conservation laws active in Star Trek. Yeah, it's pretty cool that they mm-hmm. brought that in. Uh, then they tried to use it to explain Colbert's existence. And <laughs> it started to break down a bit more. So, yeah. uh, but we live in a universe of tachyons in Star Trek world, so mm-hmm. anything is possible. <laughs> Humans love, have souls. <laughs> yes, I love the, um, the, the line about the tachyons, so I'm very curious about where that leads because uh, Captain Pike... Or maybe it was actually the Section 31 leader who realized, oh, tachyons are always connected to time travel, which would be true. Um, in, and uh, tachyons are connected to time travel in Star Trek. Uh, so I'm glad that they're consistent in that regard. Small details. Small they're, details. Good, they're good with those little details. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Elise, I am actually going to give a Science of Star Trek talk in Seattle next week. It's part of the Astro on Tap series, and we were involved in a Science of Star Trek event here at Caltech a few years ago. I gave a lecture, and then we served on a Q&A panel afterwards together, and that was a lot of fun. But I want to kind of update my lecture now that we have one and a half seasons of Star Trek Discovery, and I want to incorporate some science of Star Trek Discovery in my talk. So I'm wondering if an old pal could uh, help me out with some ideas. What do you think I should talk about? Okay, let's think. Star Trek Discovery Science. So let's ignore the mycelial network. That is off the table. Let's not talk (laughs) about it ever again. Um, except maybe, you know, small things. There's a great, maybe symbiosis would be a good one because when Tilly gets inhabited by this fungus from outer space, uh, <laughs> 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 um, it's behaving in a way that's not completely inconsistent with the way that certain fungal parasites take over insects on earth. And it, it almost reads like the writers read a story about these guys. And they're like, oh my gosh, z- Amazon zombie fungus. We're putting it in Star Trek. Um, but you could talk about the way that neural systems actually can be hijacked. Um, you can tap into them and fungi actually do that. And it's been observed. So that, that would be one thing to talk about is sim- the different kinds of symbiosis and parasitism. What's the difference? How do these fungal ones work? You know, this reminds me of when Stamets was scanning Tilly to find out exactly what was wrong with her. He realized that there was an organism living inside of Tilly and growing inside of her. And he dropped a sort of technical term. Uh, He said, you have a eukaryotic organism growing inside of you. So Elise, what's a eukaryotic organism? A eukaryotic organism is anything that has membrane encapsulated organelles inside of it. And what organelles are are sort of subdivisions of a cell that do a specific function. And really small 
creatures like bacteria and archaea, which are the two clades of life that make up most of the diversity on this planet, they don't have these membrane-encapsuled organelles inside. They're basically bags of little tiny chemical machines that do all sorts of things, but they're not really organized in space in the same way that a eukaryotic cell is. There's another basically whole world of complexity that you can get into when you have these membrane-bound organelles. But what's more easy to imagine is amoeba are eukaryotes, so they can be very small, but most of the things that we think about are plants, animals, and fungi. And so I think the reason that he used the E word is to say, ah, this is, I'm going to then say it's a fungus or something like one. So I, that's sort of why he, I think he they use that word, because fungi on Earth would fall under this category. Yeah, this hints at the whole problem at the very beginning of the mycelial network, because if you remember back to Stamets' explanation in the very beginning of the first season, he talks about how the mycelia are the progenitors of life and panspermia throughout the cosmos. And yet we know that the fungi on Earth are actually highly evolved organisms, these eukaryotes, rather than the more simple prokaryotes, the bacteria and archaea, as Elise described, which were probably more uh, in line with what the original life forms were like on yeah, Earth. Yeah, we know the first life form was not a eukaryote. So at least how did the eukaryotes arise on earth? What was that transition between prokaryotes and eukaryotes? That is a great story and it's something that people wrestled for for a really long time because there's this weird thing if you go and look in the rock record for for millennia for billions of years earth is just this microbial planet and nothing really changes that much. There's literally a part of history called the boring billion. People really were struggling to understand why eukaryotes took so long. And something that was brought up, and it is now what we believe to be true, is that there had to be this really extraordinary event. And what happened was one type of cell, related to what we now would think of as archaea, engulfed another type of cell that was like, yeah, it just eats it. Just like if you've ever, you know, if you took biology in high school and you saw those images of white blood cells engulfing things. It's like, ah, phagocytosis. Like this great word. It's basically just a cell opening up a big pocket in itself and giving another cell a hug and then dissolving it. It's like the worst hug ever. Um, but instead of dissolving it, it was the best hug ever. So this, this ancient Archean or something related to one engulfed something like a modern protobacterium, which is just a type of bacterium. And instead of eating it, decided, hey, I'm going to keep you around. Because this guy did something very useful for its new host. It made a lot of ATP, which is the cellular energy currency. So it's basically like the US dollar for cells. You know, you might need something more specific in a certain place, but everything would be converted into ATP. Yeah, and so this is why I actually think that... Stamets could probably use the word eukaryotic organism here because probably in the Star Trek timeline, after we've discovered all these different forms of life from different planets, maybe there is some universal drive to having these organelles simply from an energetic standpoint. Yeah. So if you imagine that life on all sorts of worlds emerged separately and began as analogs of prokaryotic organisms, there is a problem with growing a single-celled bacterium too large, which is that, as we've talked about on this podcast previously in our Origin of Life episode, the way that you make energy, your ATP, is 
along the membranes of your cell. And so if you are a single-celled organism, you have a certain surface area, and that surface area will correspond to roughly how much energy you can make. And you imagine growing your cell larger, like puffing up a balloon, your surface area grows larger, which is great, so you can make more energy, but your energy demand will scale as the volume of your cell, and that will go up as the size cubed rather than the size squared, uh, like the surface area does. So there's really no sense in growing larger because you end up getting less energy per unit mass of your cell, unless you do this engulfing trick. Yeah, and then all of a sudden you have membranes inside of yourself. And if you let your little symbiote make more of itself, you have all these little tiny membrane bubbles inside of you where you can start making more and more and more energy. And so then there's not this problem with size. You can grow larger and eukaryotic cells, even though single cells are still really, really small, they're on the order of a hundred times bigger on average than a bacterial or an archaeal cell. And that allows for all of this other complexity to develop, like keeping your DNA inside of a nucleus instead of free floating, dividing the DNA into chromosomes, being able to develop pseudopods like a like a amoeba does, um, having all sorts of different organelles that help you do all sorts of complex gene regulation and expression. And that allows for all sorts of new evolutionary niches to start being explored. And it allows for simple growth in size and multicellularity. And so I would feel like any species that Starfleet officers will encounter out in the cosmos and be able to have a face-to-face -face conversation with, they would all be eukaryotic organisms. They would all have essentially mitochondria powering their larger size. Yeah. And so probably Stamets is applying the word eukaryotic organism to just a, a class of organism that resembles this kind of structure. Yeah, I think a lot of words, just to give Star Trek a break a little bit, there are some words that were probably we associate with very specific things on Earth now, like specific lineages. But if you were to go and encounter an alien that's similar enough, you'd probably just borrow that word to mean something new and then just tack Earth on or Terra on to the, the original word to mean the Earth-specific version if there's mm -hmm. enough similarity. Yeah. So totally. I'm going to give them a little bit of a break <laughs> on their science terminology there. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, that's a really awesome idea for a scientific discussion for my lecture. Unfortunately, I don't think I can talk about it in that great depth um, because um, I like you're supposed to be 15 to 20 minutes and oh, I feel no. like we've just talked about this for a it's good... It's such an interesting topic. It's such an interesting topic. I agree. So you know what I'll do in my lecture? I will mention this and then point people to the podcast. I'll say, if you want to learn more about what a eukaryote really means and its evolution, check out Strange New Worlds, a yes. science and Trek podcast <laughs> where I talk about this with the least cuts. Yeah. Do you want to learn more about the worst hug ever? The worst best hug ever? <laughs> well, now you can. The so. worst best hug. I yeah. love it. I love it. Um, well, is there anything else that we want to talk about? Yes, the xenon gas scene. Oh, I love that. Okay, yeah. yes. So um, do you want to introduce this scene? Yeah, so there's this awesome scene when the best character ever, Reno, shows back up after a hiatus. I was wondering where she was. She's the best. I'm glad she's back. I want her and Stamus to be Bet's friends. Okay. Rant over. <laughs> um, but she shows back up, and then she, Tilly, and uh, Stamets are all trapped in engineering because the ship is going haywire, because the, the spheres virus is going nuts. I think this is episode four. And so they're trapped in engineering, and there's this huge, for some reason, huge electrical potential that is across engineering. So they're essentially in the middle of a battery. Uh -huh. 
And that is a lot of potential. And so basically they're worried that if our oxygen ignites, we'll cook like french fries. So they need to resolve this potential. They need to create a current that's not going to light the air on fire. And they come up with this interesting idea that's essentially a really sophisticated neon lamp is what they do. Well, we could divert the power to act like a, a, a lightning arrester. We could use the door as a ground, then the surge would dissipate through the frame of the ship. The question is, how do we conduct the surge from there to there? No, uh, gas could, once it ionizes. I infuse the spores with an argon-xenon mixture to slow decay. Uh, we could link up the canisters to contain the gas, our version of a lightning rod. It's actually not a stupid idea. It's my version of the house dressing, but it saves your life. So Stamets has um, an argon-xenon atmosphere in his capsules for the spores. And he thinks that what they could do is they could hook up all of these capsules together with these tubes and create a gas pathway that the arc could go through without igniting the oxygen. And this is essentially what a neon light does. It creates a potential across a tube full of gas. And when that gas ionizes, as the current flows through, it glows. And so they set up their crazy neon lamp and it works. I mean, it zaps people. Except it's not made of neon because they don't have neon Neon, gas. They They have argon and xenon. Yeah. And so I just so happened to be reading a paper that includes a table of the ionization potentials (laughs) for different gaseous elements. Thrilling reading. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I'll tell you what this paper was about. But the, the main point here is that why would you choose argon or xenon? So you would want to try to ionize something that was easier to ionize than the ambient air around you. Otherwise, you would just say, why don't we ionize our air? And our air is mostly made of nitrogen, right? And so nitrogen actually has a pretty high ionization threshold. Argon has a slightly higher one. So it's actually harder to ionize argon than nitrogen. But But (laughs) xenon has an extraordinarily low ionization potential compared to these. And so my guess is that if Stamets was being smart about it, would have realized I have an argon-xenon mixture. Somehow I'm going to get rid of the argon and just use the xenon to channel this electric potential. Yeah, or maybe it was mostly xenon or something like that. Yeah, but because of that xenon, it means that the electricity wouldn't look at that, you know, nice current pathway that they gave it and go, nah, that's awful. That's really hard to go through. I'm going to go through the air and light everyone on fire. Because it's a nice, easier path for the electricity to flow through, it takes the path of least resistance, goes through, Boom, spark, everybody's on the floor, but nobody's dead. (laughs) Yeah, saved their butts. So hey, you could talk about the science of neon lights. Sure, Um, that sounds like a great topic too. (laughs) There's probably going to be some in the bar you're in. (laughs) Let me me tell you about this uh, xenon though and why it's important. So uh, the reason why I was looking at this paper with xenon's ionization potential is because we're trying to understand how Earth's early atmosphere looked like and... Earth's atmosphere has evolved over time for many different reasons, but one of them is because gases have left and escaped our atmosphere. We want to understand that process. And the way that an element like xenon leaves Earth's atmosphere 
is by getting ionized and then following a magnetic field out of the pole. Basically the reverse of the process that causes the aurora or the northern lights near the poles. Xenon by itself, when it's neutral, is too heavy to escape Earth's gravity, but when it becomes ionized, it has an electric charge and can follow the field lines away from our planet. And so to explain the different flavors or isotopes of xenon, which have slightly different masses, and how much we see in Earth's atmosphere today, um, we need to understand how xenon can be ionized and the tracks and fluxes through which it can leave the atmosphere by the poles. So, <laughs> wow, it's the neon lights and Star Trek and early Earth. Absolutely. Well, that was an electrifying discussion <laughs> with you, Elise, as uh, they always are. I'm so are. sad that um, this is going to be the last time for a bit again. For a little bit, but I have a plan. It might not be a divine plan that involves red angels. Oh, wow. But uh, I think I know what our next episode will be. And I'm hoping to do this over subspace communications, a.k.a. Skype. <laughs> this time, it won't surround a Star Trek episode, per se, but a Star Trek novel. Oh, am I getting a present? So. <clears throat> I'm so excited. It's like a Christmas. novel came out recently <gasps> called The Way to the Stars. And it is about young Tilly. Tilly. <laughs> oh, I love Tilly. I relate to her a lot. <laughs> so I thought you could read that novel. I've got my own copy. We could read it. And Book when club. we're both done, yeah, instead of discussing the science of a Star Trek episode or movie, this time we could discuss a Star Trek book. That would be awesome. That's really a good idea. I'm so excited to read this book about Tilly. What a good idea, Mike. That concludes episode 64 of Strange New Worlds. I can't wait for the next time that I get to talk to Elise Cutts about science and Star Trek. And as for my Astro on Tap talk about the science of Star Trek, I gave it shortly after returning to Seattle, and I decided... I wouldn't put anything about Discovery in there. I mean, I had a hard enough time trying to squeeze the five other Star Trek series, well over 700 episodes, and 13 movies into a single 20-minute talk. But also, I didn't want to spoil anybody who hasn't watched Discovery yet. But I did point my audience here to this podcast in case they wanted to hear about the science of Discovery. And in return, I will point you my podcast listeners, to my talk. It's on YouTube. Just follow the link in the show notes. Astro on Tap is a series of monthly astronomy-related talks held at bars all around the world. Just go to astronomyontap.org to find the one closest to you. Until next time, drink the universe. I'll see you out there.
honest. I went to I went to Vroman's, and you won't believe who I met there. I met Ira Stephen Bear, who was the executive producer of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He was literally shopping at a bookstore in Pasadena, and I was just like, "What luck!" I'm literally looking for a Star Trek novel right now, and. <laughs> I run into one of the producers from Deep Space Nine. Oh my Nine. god! Yeah, I recognized him because he always has this bluish purple beard. It's like his style, and you know, I've seen pictures of him. I've seen him at conventions. I've never talked to him one on one before. Oh but my god! Like, but did you like go up to him? I went up to him and was like, "Are you Iris Stephen Bear?" And he was like, "Yes." And I was like, "I am a big fan of your work." You just accost this guy. Yeah, I mean, when you have the chance to meet a Star yeah, Trek that's producer, awesome. just got to go for it. Yeah.